this morning we are returning back to the book of Mark. So if you were with us last summer, you know that we spent 19 weeks walking through the book of Mark and we made it to Mark chapter 7. Uh, and so we are going to start again at Mark chapter 7 and we're going to continue for the next 18 to 19 weeks, uh, maybe longer, maybe shorter, who knows. We'll just see the way that it goes and just continue walking through the story of Mark. And if you have been part of our church, you know this is kind of one of our rhythms, is each summer we go to a deep dive through, through a single book and we just walk through it verse by verse. We slowly walk through the, the text to see what it is that, that we need to, to see. And so as we think about this, though, I don't think there's a more important verse, more important passage of Scripture to slowly walk through than the Gospels, uh, understanding who Jesus is and, and what Jesus wants us to be like. So a few weeks ago when Tiffany and I were back in America, we were, we were giving an update about what God has been doing in Ireland and sharing about the, the things that have been happening here with one of our supporting churches. And after we finished presenting, we went out in the, the foyer or the vestibule, whatever you want to call it, however fancy you want to be, and we were just having some conversations with people. And I was in a conversation with three ladies who, like, they were like in their 50s, 40s or 50s, and they had their younger daughter there with them. And we were just kind of having this conversation about Ireland and what is happening. And, and one one of them said to me, they said, it must be really hard to have left your friends and family. And one of the other ladies agreed. He's like, yeah, it must be. I don't think I could have done that. And they all kind of nodded in agreement. And I was like, well, yeah, it really was hard. I mean, it's hard to leave friends. It's hard to leave family and, and to move to a new country with people you don't know. And, and that's difficult. But then I said, but it's even more difficult to live a life of disobedience to Jesus. It's even more difficult to, to live a life that is opposing what Jesus would have for us. And they looked at me and they said, wow, you, you must really love Jesus. And I, I was like, yes, thank you. Like, I was so excited to hear this. Because, like, I mean, think about that compliment, right? If someone comes up to you and says, man, you must really love Jesus, right? Like, that's a great compliment. And I was just really, I was grateful. I was humbled by your statement. I was like, thank you so much. Like, I'm so glad that you could feel that and you could hear that from, from our conversation together. I'm so glad that you could hear that and feel that from our presentation. I'm so glad that you could see that. And it started to get a little bit awkward. That's the moment I realized it was not a compliment, but a criticism. She was criticizing me. She wasn't complimenting me. It was one of those like, oh, you're one of those people. One of those fanatics, one of those people who, who take this whole thing about Jesus a little too seriously. And it was in that moment, and I was asking her to explain, and that's kind of what she was walking through with me. And it got a little bit awkward and a little bit tense. And so I spent the rest of our conversation together just talking about the lordship of Jesus, talking about what it looks like to actually be a follower of Jesus and following out what he has for us. And I don't want to be too hard on that lady because I think we've all done that from time to time, haven't we? We show up on church on the weekends. We'll listen to the gospel. We'll listen to the message proclaimed, but we have real no in, really no intention of allowing the way of Jesus to change us. We'll, we'll read our scriptures. We'll get together. We'll talk, but we really don't really have any plans of allowing Jesus to transform our lives. And so as we go and we dive into the gospels together, man, it is my prayer that we allow the, the life of Jesus to radically change us that we will allow the life of Jesus, the way that he lived, to, to be the way that we live. As we see the way that Jesus loved people, we see the way that he loved, that will be the way that we begin to live. Because when we truly understand Jesus, when we truly come to grips with him, it's going to radically transform us. It's going to radically change us if we're allowing him to do that. 
So that's my prayer for us over these next couple of months, is that as we read through the words of Mark's gospel, we'll allow Jesus to change, to transform, to radically shape our lives. And so just to catch up where we were, where we left Jesus last, last year was Jesus had just had another showdown with the, with the Pharisees. Jesus has been discussing with the, the religious leaders, and they've had this little showdown, and there's been another disagreement between Jesus and the religious leaders, and Jesus was talking about inner purity, not just outward purity, and Jesus calls them out and said, you care more about your human traditions than you care about the way of God. You care more about your man-made rules and regulations than you care about actually living the way of Jesus, or living the way that God has for us. And that's where we left off. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 7, verse 24 is where we're going to be. It's also here on the screen for us. And here's how the story continues. Uh, Mark, not Luke. Mark, I'm Luke. Not, uh, that's Mark. I'm Luke. Let's just, let's just make sure you know. Mark chapter 7. Let's, let's be in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. Here's what Mark writes. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by a demon, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. She was a Gentile, born in Syrian Felicia. Jesus told her, First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take the food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. And so as we dive into this text, we're going to do the boring part first. We're going to get a little bit of the context to really see what is happening here. We've got to, we've got to come to grips with the historical context of what is going on that really sets the stage for the entire text. First of all, we have this idea of this place called Tyre. So what Jesus has done is Jesus has left Galilee, which has been his mission center for, for most of his ministry. And so Jesus leaves there, and he goes to this place called Tyre. And if you're looking at a map, Tyre is about 35 miles northwest of Galilee, so about 50, a little over 50 kilometers away. This is where Jesus has gone. And it's not unheard of for people to go to Tyre. Like it's kind of a long way, but you know, people would have traveled from there, and it would have been close enough to Galilee that they would have at least heard a little bit about Jesus. They would have known a little bit that's going on. They would have done some of these things. But here's the fact, as we read through the Bible, Tyre and Israel were very well acquainted, and not in the best way. So what we find is you look all the way back to, to 1 Kings 16, we get introduced to the place called Tyre because King Ahab, the king of Israel, marries this lovely lady by the name of Queen Jezebel. She is from Tyre, and everything goes terrible from then. So Jezebel wants to seek out in, in 1 Kings 19 and try to kill Elijah because she, he's killed the prophets of Baal, and, and it has been a mess. And the relationship between Israel and Tyre does not get any better. Like as we read through historical data from people like Josephus or other historians in the day, they describe Tyre as Israel's most bitterest enemy. But Jesus, he goes to, he goes to Tyre. 
And this is fascinating for us as we're walking through the, the book of Mark. This is only the second time that Jesus has left Galilee in the book of Mark. The first time Jesus leaves in Mark chapter 4, he crosses this, the, 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 the sea and it begins to get really wavy and, and the storm comes up and Jesus just like rebukes the storm. They go to the region of the garrison. There's a demon-possessed man, comes out of cave. Jesus heals him and he leaves. That's been Jesus' experience outside of Galilee thus far. But now he is making his way to Tyre. And what's important for us to understand as we look at this story as a whole is that Tyre and the Gentiles would have spent their lives basically on the, on the border of Jesus' ministry. Like Tyre is like, it's like right there. It's so close to the border. Like they would have heard about what Jesus was doing. They would have known and they would, they, like, they would have had enough information that went during tea break they could talk a little bit about it. Like, they could have probably seen the tweets on social media trending, oh, Jesus heals another person. Like, they would have heard a little bit about what Jesus was doing, but they are just, they're right there on the outskirts. They're right on the border of everything that is going on. They're close, but not part of what is happening. And so I think for us, it sets up this entire thing today is this, is the last place that Jesus wants us to remain is on the outskirts. The last place Jesus wants us to stay is on the outskirts. And some of you guys know what that's like. Like you show up on the weekend, you're here, but you don't really know if you're actually in. Like you're, you're close. You kind of tiptoe the line a little bit. Maybe you dip your toe in just to see what it feels like, but, but you're not really in. You're on the outskirts of living life that, on mission. You're, on, you're kind of on the border of living a life that Jesus wants for you, but you're not truly committed. You're not truly in. And that is the last place that Jesus wants you to remain. That's the last place Jesus wants you to stay. And these people, this is where they are. They've spent their lives right on the border. And that's not where he wants us to remain. That's not where he wants us to stay. And so the first time that Jesus leaves Galilee, the demon-possessed man from the garrisons comes out, or Jesus goes to him. This time, the lady seeks out Jesus. And so, as early in Mark's gospel... We get a clue of perhaps how this lady has heard about Jesus. In, in Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, here's what we begin to find is that Jesus went out to the lake and his, with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over, Galilee, Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Idium, and east of the Jer Jordan River, and even as far north as Tyre and Sidon, and the news about his miracle spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. So back in Mark 3, we find this lady, somehow, someone from Tyre, has heard about what Jesus is doing. Because here's the reality. The news about Jesus is supposed to spread, right? The news about Jesus is supposed to spread, and that is what is happening here. And she has heard, she has found out something about that. Like, we don't know whether she was one of the people in the crowd in Mark chapter 3. Seems a little unlikely because she's asking for a miracle here. She probably would have asked then if she needed the miracle. But more than likely, she isn't in the crowd, but she's heard about him. She's heard enough about Jesus. The, the news about him has began to circulate enough that there is something that, in her that believes that she can approach Jesus. There's something in her from everything that she's heard and what she's began to collect is that she can go to Jesus, that he is approachable, that Jesus would be willing to accept her, that Jesus would welcome her in his presence. And just a little bit of an aside as we begin to think through this idea, man, I just wonder, 
what is the picture of Jesus that people are getting from you? As you talk about Jesus, what is the picture that people are beginning to get? As you live for Jesus in your life and you live your life on mission, what is the picture of Jesus that people are getting? Like this lady, she, she starts to believe that I can approach him, that I can go to him, that he has the power so what about you? What are people learning about Jesus from the way that you talk about him or the way that you live for him? And so what we see is, is Jesus, he leaves Galilee. He's gone to Tyre. Not only has he gone to Tyre, but he interacts with this, this Gentile lady. And I just want to make sure that we know what a Gentile is. A very simple definition of what a Gentile is is not a Jew. All right? Real, real simple, not a Jew. So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a people out of Abraham. He calls up a nation of himself. He's like, you are going to be my, my special people, my special possession, the people that I love. So they are, are the Jews. They are the Israelites. And then what began to happen is Israel, they began to spread out throughout the world a little bit. And, and so there's these Jews, and then there's this other group of people who are not Jews, and they are called the Gentiles. So there's a little bit different. Some Jews would have looked at them as unclean. They couldn't enter all, all the parts of the temple. They weren't allowed to do that. They were allowed to eat bacon, so they did have that going for them. But like for the most part, like the, there was, there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles, but here's what's important. Is they're different, but they're both loved by the Father. They're both deeply loved by God, created by God. And so as we dive into this text, for me, there is a couple of things that just seem to really contradict the character of Jesus. Like, I'll just be real honest. When I first read through this text, there's a couple of things that just were a little uncomfortable for me. And the first was, like, Jesus seems to be hiding, right? So let's, let's look at that in verse 24. He leaves Galilee, goes to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. So here's Jesus trying to hide. Not only trying to hide, but actively trying to keep it a secret. Like, and now as we read through that, like, you think about this idea about Jesus, like, that just doesn't seem to fit his character, right? Like, it just seems like what we know to be true about Jesus is Jesus wants everyone to know about him. He wants everyone to be close to him. He wants everyone to get to know him and, and to experience him. I mean, if you're God incarnate, don't you want to make yourself available to everyone? Like, this just seems to be a little bit of contradictory to the character of Jesus. And so perhaps Jesus wants to go hide because this is, he's waiting for the, the, the political heat of the Pharisees to die down. Maybe Jesus is knowing, like, okay, I've, I've made the Pharisees mad enough, the religious leaders mad enough, I, it's time for me to go and, and hide out for a little bit. Could be the reason that he's doing this. More than likely, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to spend some time with his disciples. He wants to spend some time mentoring them, helping, helping them be an apprentice of his, helping him, them to learn what it looks like to walk in relationship with Jesus. As we read through the book of Mark, the disciples clearly, they don't get it. They haven't really grasped what it looks like to live for him yet. And so perhaps that's what Jesus is doing, but he's, he's trying to hide, trying to hide away. But let's be honest, let's cut Jesus a little bit of slack here. All of us can get that, right? Anyone ever had one of those moments where all you wanted to do was like hide away? Like, oh, I just need a few minutes, few hours, a little bit of time to hide away. 
you guys feel that. Even, the, even like myself, one of the extroverts in the room, like I can feel that deep down in my bones. It's like every once in a while, I just need to go hide and not have a kid hanging on me. And, and it usually takes about three minutes before they find me, but those three minutes are glorious, right? Like, but here's the thing, like we can all, we can all get that. Like we can, it's, it's, it's pretty easy not to hold that against Jesus. But the other contradiction that we see in this text is a little more difficult to swallow. It's a little harder to come to grips with. And that's that Jesus seems unwilling, or at least hesitant, to heal this lady's daughter. Doesn't that contradict everything we know to be true about Jesus? Doesn't he want to heal people? Doesn't he want to do these things? And here he is, this lady comes to him, and it's like, my daughter is demon-possessed. He's like, yeah, no, you're a Gentile. Read this again in verse 27. She comes to him. She says, my daughter, she's demon-possessed. Help. And Jesus says, first, I should go feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't seem to fit what we know to be true about Jesus. That doesn't seem to fit what it looks like, what we know about Jesus. And so it seems to be the seeming contradiction in the character of Jesus. Shouldn't Jesus want to heal this lady? or this lady's daughter? Shouldn't Jesus jump at the chance to, to show his power and, and defeat evil again? Shouldn't Jesus jump at that? But as we read through the Old Testament, what I think is really important for us is this is really in line of how the Old Testament would have predicted that the Messiah would have spoken. I think it's important that we realize that Mark, when he's writing his gospel, he is not, he is not whitewashing Jesus. He is not making Jesus fit a, a bit more than what like, we would be want him to fit. Like, no, Mark is, he, this, Jesus is the historical Messiah. This is, what, this is how the Messiah would have talked. This is what the Messiah would have believed. And so Mark isn't making Jesus after he's died in some kind of this huge missionary who goes all through all the world doing these things. No, he, he keeps true to what Jesus wants. And so, at the start, Jesus seems unwilling to heal this lady's kid, which seems like a contradiction, but I think there's something so much more at play here. I think as we begin to dive through this text, there's something so much more at stake here, is what if this is more of a test of faith for the lady, and also a, a mission statement for Jesus? So here's what I think is really important for us to make sure we come to grips with is, this is, this is a hard one. Jesus isn't a genie. Jesus isn't a genie. We can't just go rub a lamp and ask Jesus to give us whatever we want. It'd be nice if we did, right? It'd be nice if Jesus would just do whatever we wanted him to do whenever we wanted him to do it. But Jesus isn't a genie. We're not just coming up to him, rubbing a lamp and say, hey, Jesus, do this for me. And he's like, okay, pal. It's not what happens here. And so this is one of the reasons I think praying the prayer, the Lord's Prayer together is so important. Because there is a statement in that prayer that we pray every single week. It's, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think we should pray that even more personally. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in me as it is in heaven. And so the Christian life isn't, just, isn't about Jesus giving us what we want but rather us giving Jesus what he wants. Largely, surrender, obedience, lordship of our lives. This is what he wants from us. 
And so, as we begin to wrestle with this, what we're beginning to see is, is Jesus is, has more in store. There's something more to Jesus than, than what this lady begins to, to wrestle with. But as we, as we dive through this text, there's a few things that we got to make sure that we understand. Some things that are really important for us. There's really, I think there's three things we know to be true about Jesus that is good for us to realize. And thing number one is this, that Jesus, he isn't being racist. Like when we look through this text, when Jesus says, first, I got to feed the Jews, like they're, they're my people. Jesus isn't being a racist here. As we look in, in the book of Revelation, John gets a view into heaven and it starts to say that there's every tongue, every tribe, every nation worshiping God. Notice that John doesn't say Jesus is in the corner with his arm crossing and I thought it was just going to be the Jews. No, that's not, that's not no, Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't a racist. He, that's not what this is about. Another thing is important for us is Jesus knows. Jesus knows how much time on earth he has. He knows what the work, the ministry that he needs to do. He, he knows that. But I also think it's important for us to know this to be true about Jesus. His great faith always moves Jesus. Great faith always moves Jesus. In fact, when we read this text, Mark or Matthew retells this story in Matthew 16. He adds this little comment of, that Jesus says to the lady. He says, your faith is great. Your request is granted. So great faith always moves the heart of Jesus. And we see that in this story. And so what I think this story is, is it's not just about treating Jesus like a genie. What I think this story is, it's a call for every single one of us to live a mission-aligned life. To live a, live a life that is online with the mission that Jesus has for us. To live a life that, that aligns with the heart of our Father. And so we can see this. We can see a few things. We can learn from the lady in this way. Let's look at verses 25 and 26 again. So Jesus is hiding out. He's trying to keep it a secret of where he is, but that doesn't work. Right away, a woman who heard about him came, fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. You want to take your next step towards Jesus? You don't really know what to do. Follow this lady's example. There's three things I think are really significant is right away. Go to him right away. Come and fall at his feet. You want to know what it's like to follow Jesus? You want to align your life to him? Get at his feet and worship him and follow him and come to him immediately. Like this is what we see this lady doing. And I think it's important for us to realize like this is not an easy task. Remember, Jesus is at least trying to stay hidden. So I just envision this lady asking around, hey, where's that, where's that Jesus guy? Where's the Messiah? Where is he? Is he in this house? Nope, not that house. And then I just, this is what I envision this lady doing. She is doing everything she can. She's searching out, seeking out Jesus. And when she finds him, she falls at his feet. That's a good place for us to start, to take our next step towards Jesus is falling at his feet in worship. But then there's something in verse 26, that I think is really significant for us. It says this. She said, it says this, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. So let me just ask you this question. On whose behalf are you begging Jesus? On whose behalf are you begging Jesus? This lady, she falls at her feet and she begs Jesus not for herself, but for her daughter. Just think for yourself just a second. Who is the primary focus of your prayers? Is it you? Someone else? 
Something else? If you're anything like me, maybe you're, God, please help me to have a good day. Help me to do this. Help me to find this job. Help me to have this experience. Help me to enjoy this. Not that praying for ourselves is bad, but I wonder, is how much of our prayer lives are just focused on us rather than focusing on the mission of Jesus? Begging Jesus for beha- on behalf of something else. So let me just ask you, when is the last time you fell on your face before Jesus and begged him on behalf of someone that you loved? When was the last time that you were just praying, openly praying for the, on behalf of someone you loved or, the, or behalf of someone that you love that they love or behalf of a city that you love or on behalf of a village that you love? When is the last time that we were doing that? What is the focus of your prayers? And so this lady, she is willing. She falls before Jesus' feet, doesn't ask for anything for herself but for the sake of her daughter. And so we continue to see, we see this play out. So that's what we can learn from the lady. There's a lot we can learn from Jesus in living a mission life. Verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, first, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. I want us to pay special attention to the very first thing that Jesus speaks in this passage. What is the very first word that Jesus says to this lady? Good, say it out loud. First. The first word that Jesus says is first. What does first imply? Second. All right, so that's important. As we begin to understand the mission of Jesus, it's really important that Jesus starts by saying first. So when Tiffany and I first got married, we, we celebrated our 12-year anniversary a few weeks back, and, and I was a little immature, still am at, at times, but more mature now than I used to be. And the way that my mind works is my mind just works in logical progressions. Like, that's just the way, that's the way my, my brain works. And so every once in a while, Tiffany and I would get in an argument or get in a, a discussion, and I would start off by saying, well, first of all, and then I would tell her the first of all, and then, like, I'd start to realize, hey, that didn't go over very well. And then she would say, well, what, what's second? And here's what I've learned throughout the years is when I was first married, I thought that was an invitation to share more. It's a challenge. I dare you to share more. Like, when you say, okay, what's second? I, now I realize, okay, my first point was good enough. I've lost. This is fine. And, but here's the idea. is like, first, it always implies that there is a second. Like, this was the plan. Like, the the gospel going to the Gentiles wasn't this happy accident for us as Gentiles because persecution broke out against the church, and I guess they have to talk to someone who's there. Like, it's not an accident. Yeah, sure, there was a first, but there's also a second. This was the plan. This is what was looking to happen. And it's this idea that this future feeding, yeah, the Jews were going to be fed, but there was going to be this future feeding that was going to come. There was, going to be, there was going to be a second. And we see this true with Paul. Paul is this, minister, this missionary that, that Jesus calls for the sake of the Gentiles. But if we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So here's Paul, the missionary to the Gentile, who is acknowledging there's the first, but there's also a second. Every single one of Paul's uh, missionary journeys, every place he stops, first, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the Jewish people and he reasons with them. Then when they don't listen, or they do, he goes to the Gentiles. So this this is the plan. 
This is the way that things are always meant to go. And so what we begin to see with this lady is the faith of this Gentile lady, it foreshadows the faith of the Gentile mission. That the faith of this lady, it is a foreshadow, it's a forerunning, it's showing us what is going to happen later for this Gentile mission that is going to be going on. When Jesus says first to this lady, he tips his hand, he tells him the plan. And if you remember, we talked about this when we did three summers through the book of Acts. Perhaps you have Acts 1-8 memorized. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling everyone about me everywhere, first in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This was the plan. This was always what was meant to happen. So from the very beginning, as we look back, it has always been a call for the Gentiles to be included in the, in the gospel. They were always going to be invited. There were, the, the, the border was not always going to be there. there were, the gospel was ready. It was going to cross the borders. As we look all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we talked about God calling a people out of, out of the line of Abraham. Three verses into that call of Abraham, God speaks to Abraham and he says, through you, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's been the call as soon as God called his people Israel. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, God is giving this prophecy to Isaiah. And he's talking about the Jews that you will be the light for the Gentiles. Like this has always been the plan. And so as we begin to walk through this and we start to wonder like what is happening here? What is Jesus doing? If this isn't just Jesus saying, hey, the Jews are my people, I'm, not, I'm more worried about that. What is Jesus doing? And I think what we see Jesus doing is he is intentionally being a little provocative, trying to draw out this great statement of faith from this lady. He's trying to get her to claim what is rightfully hers, which is to be in relationship with the Father. Because great faith... It always moves the heart of God. And we see that play out for us here. This is what moves the heart of our Father. Look at verses 28 and 29. The lady replied, That's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. So I think it's important for us to notice the first thing that the lady says to Jesus is, that's true, Lord. She calls him Lord. Here's a fun fact for you, trivia, if you want. This is the only place in Mark's gospel that someone calls Jesus Lord. It's the only place. It's right here. So the first place that someone calls Jesus Lord in the gospel of Mark is by a foreigner, a from Tyre? A Gentile woman? Really? That's the first person who calls Jesus Lord. That is powerful. She, she, she gets it. In a contradiction to the disciples, like she understands who Jesus is. She understands what he is about. She understands that he is Lord and he is king and he is somebody who is worthy to be fallen, fall at his feet and worship and surrender to. Like She gets it. And as we listen to her response, Man, it is soaked. It is drenched. It is saturated with humility. Look again at verse 28. That's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. That's true. Notice that statement. Man, that's powerful. She doesn't argue with Jesus. 
She doesn't debate him. She just says, that's true. So my kids, they are, they are currently in this uh, that's not fair stage. And if you, you've experienced this before, it's like, it doesn't really matter what it is. If we try to tr- give, a, one of, we give a, a reward to one of our kids for something, the other one will be like, well, I want, I want a jelly bean. I want one. I was like, well, you're not going to get one. And they'll be like, well, that's not fair. And like almost everything in life is like they look at the plates and how much food are on there. Oh, she has more. That's not fair. She has more my wadi than me. That's not fair. And, and so this is Ava's favorite, one of her terms is that's not fair. And Emma, she's just more blunt. And I was like, that's not right. And this is what this lady could have done, right? Like, I mean, just look at it. It's not my fault, Jesus, that I didn't get invited to the table. God, you have the power. You could have put me, you could have birthed me into a Jewish family. That's not my fault. That's not fair that I'm not. She doesn't argue these things with Jesus. She doesn't even argue that, that the Jews are called children and that she's called a dog. She doesn't argue any of that. She just says to Jesus, like, that's true. That's true. Jesus. And she says, but even the children, even the dogs can eat the scraps that fall from the table. And I love this idea. It's like she's not asking for the whole meal. She's not asking for for the extravagance. She is fine with the scraps that begin to fall off the table. She's heard about Jesus. She knows a little bit about him, and that seems to be good enough. And then that what she's learned to be true about Jesus is that he's good and that the scraps of his message, the scraps of what he has to offer are good enough. And I love this idea is that she doesn't have all the questions answered, but she has the most important question is that Jesus is Lord and everything else, any other question that she might have is irrelevant when she has that answer. And so for us, like maybe we have these questions about following Jesus. Maybe there's a reason we're kind of on the border because we have these questions that we have to deal with, that we have to wrestle with. But the question that you already have answered is that that God loves you and he wants to be in relationship with you. And everything else is kind of irrelevant. Not really irrelevant, but but when that's the framework of our questions, everything begins to change. And I love this idea of this, the food falling off the table of children's plate. Once again, I have two kids. And when we eat food, when we have our meals, we have two dogs at our house. Maddie and Allie, our dog's name, you know whose chair they camp out under? It's not, it's not under my chair. It's not under Tiffany's chair. A little bit under Ava's chair, but it's Emma. Like, it's the two-year-old, and they are camped out waiting for her because there's going to be plenty of food falling off the table. And here's the thing. I pretty, I'm pretty sure, like, this is hardwired into dogs because when we go to someone else's house, like, we don't even know them. They have a dog. They go camp out under Emma. They're like, that kid is going to drop plenty of food. And here's the idea for us is God's grace is so abounding and so much that it's literally falling off the table. There's so much grace. There's so much love of the Father that it is just spilling out everywhere. There's enough for you. There's enough for me. There's enough for this lady, regardless of the sin in our lives, regardless of of what we've done, regardless of, of how much we have messed up. There is enough grace of the Father that it is falling off the table and it is there for us. And so the two things in this story that moves the heart of our Father is faith and humility. She believes that Jesus is who he says he is. 
She believes that Jesus can do what he says he can do. He has this great faith in her, in him, but there's also this great humility that he, she doesn't argue the point with him. And what I love is Jesus' reply to this lady in verse 29. Jesus replies to her, good answer. Jesus isn't upset that he has lost an argument. Jesus isn't worried that he, like, he, far from being duped or best or, like, outsmarted. Like, Jesus is, Jesus is thrilled with this response because this is what he wanted from this lady in the beginning with. He wanted this great commitment of faith and humility. Man, I just picture Jesus with a smile on his face, love in his eyes, and just joy written all over him as he, she gives this answer. And what we begin to see is this is actually a model of the, the, the ideal disciple, someone who is willing to put themselves last so others may be first. This is what we see playing out here. This, is, this lady is giving us a model of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So let's finish the story, see the way that it ends, verse 29 and 30. Good answer, Jesus said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon had gone. So Jesus cast out a demon. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? Jesus cast out a demon in probably the most boring way possible. Like, I've actually never seen the movie The Exorcist, but I've heard enough about it. Like, I've heard people talk about, like, casting out demons or having experience with demons. Like, Stephen and I actually had this little encounter with, like, a demon-possessed, oppressed man, not really sure. But, like, we've had these moments, and, like, I've, I've, I've been in that kind of situation. And anytime we see demon possession, we see this happening, it's always some crazy thing that's going on. And, and Jesus is just like, all right, the demon's gone. It's probably the most boring way possible to cast out a demon. But don't overlook the fact that Jesus cast out a demon. All right, he may have done it in a boring way, but casting out a demon is still not an easy thing to do. And Jesus just says it. And the demon is gone. Jesus doesn't have to go and, and do these crazy rituals and all these other things. Like Jesus just says that the demon is gone and it is gone. Because that is the power that Jesus has. That is the power that Jesus possesses is he can just say that the demon is gone, and it's gone. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus heals from a distance. It's right here with this lady. And I love what begins to happen. It's like, what do we do with that? When Jesus can do things that no one else can do, when Jesus has the power that no one else has, what should we do? I think we do what this lady does, and we respond to him in faith. We fall at his feet in worship. Let's look at verse 30. One more time. I think this is powerful. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. And this lady, she just believes Jesus. Jesus says the demon's gone, and she says, okay. And she leaves, and she just goes home. She trusts that Jesus is actually going to do what he said he was going to do. There's no ask for assurances here. There, she doesn't say, okay, Jesus, um, how can I know that you cast out the demon? How can I know that? Or, or if it didn't work, Jesus, where can I find you? You've been, you were kind of hard to track down. Where can I find you if it doesn't work? There's none of that. She just believes him. And she goes home. 
And when she goes home, she finds that her daughter has been healed. She just trusts him. And this is what Jesus wants from us, is this great trust. What the faith that Jesus wants from us is a faith that trusts in advance. This is the faith that he wants. We might not understand. We might not, it might not have happened the way that we thought it was going to go. It might not be as, as extravagant or wild as we thought it was going to be. But it's a faith that trusts in advance. We trust that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. And Jesus can simply say the demon has left and it is so. And it happens. As we think about all of our lives, Jesus can simply say your sins are forgiven and it's so because Jesus says so. So maybe today you're you don't know what step to take towards Jesus. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you've spent your life just on this border, not really ready to cross over into truly following him. If that's the case, man, today's the day to accept the grace of the Father that's so much that it's falling off the table, to accept him, to bow at his feet, and to worship him, surrender to him as Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, we thank you God, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for the way that you have worked in all of our lives. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us, that you have saved us. God, we thank you that, that when you said first that there was a second, and that all of us have had the chance to hear the gospel and the message of Jesus proclaimed. And Lord, as we, we look at the story of this lady who was just really this model disciple, who follows you, who surrenders to you, calls you Lord and trusts you, God, I pray that we will do the same. God, help our trust to grow, help our faith to grow, help our love for you and for other people to grow. And Lord, I thank you that there's enough grace to go around, that there is enough forgiveness for all of us to be, to be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that today if we haven't accepted your, your grace and your forgiveness, that we'll meet you there. We'll surrender our lives to you in baptism and we'll allow you to rescue us and to save us. Father, we thank you for all that you've done and thank you for the way that you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.